Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm enjoying the the summer. It's It's been a nice summer here in Fargo. It seemed to go right from winter to summer. We didn't actually get a spring, and that's okay. I just needed the sun and, and to be outside again. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really good. So... Uh, today we're finally getting around to doing our uh, Ask Us Anything kind of Q&A episode that uh, we launched a tweet for last month for our Mental Health Awareness Month. And kind of the idea that we had behind this was that uh, we really enjoy the interaction that we have with the people who listen to the show and read the blog posts and, and, and just interact with us in general. So we thought this might be a fun way to kind of bridge or elicit some more of that interaction by just saying hey you've got a couple of folks here who who like to talk at a microphone just ask us whatever you want and we'll answer those questions and luckily no one took advantage of that offer to ask me very hard or very personal questions <laughs> they're all very good questions yeah. So, yeah so uh maybe without further ado we'll just kind of kind of dig in on these and we've got a list of them and then um right away next week i'm going to pick one of these people who submitted one of these questions to win a fabulous piece of Jedi Council merchandise <laughs> from our Jedi Council merchandise store. So look forward to that. So Katie, I'm going to let you start off because you have a, you have nominated, not nominated, you've volunteered us to jump in on a question from another show. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. There is an excellent podcast, which we've mentioned on the show before, called The Black Goat. It's with Samin Vizier, Alexa Tullett, and Sanjay Srivastava, and they talk about issues related to psychological science. Part of their show that they do is they respond to letters that they get, often from grad students, early career people, asking for advice, and then they give really thoughtful replies. They had a question on this last episode about a graduate student who is in clinical psychology, and we'll link to this in our show notes because it's worth listening to hear their replies. But the basic gist of the question was, is it okay to have a podcast when you're in graduate school for clinical psychology? And the premise of it was that this student who chose to remain anonymous had interviewed for a practicum site and practicum sites for uh, people who don't know what that is, are where clinical psychology graduate students and other people in the mental health field go to learn how to do therapy. They often involve seeing clients directly, being supervised and things like that. And so this person interviewed for the site and was told that they were not going to be given an offer to join the practicum site in part because of their podcast, or maybe more than in part, but it's not really clear. And so it's it's definitely worth listening to the episode directly because I thought the responses were very helpful, very thoughtful, 
And we just wanted to expand coming from people who are in clinical psychology. And Bryn is a clinical psychology graduate student, mm-hmm. so maybe you could start off with some of your thought process mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. So I, it's I think that in the in the black goat they sort of qualify their answer with with that there's not a lot of context about the show or what it was about. So I want to have that same qualifier for us. Um, but the graduate students podcast, yes. what the content? Yeah, of kind of what the content of yeah. that show was. And I I should say the the information that we have is that it was a podcast on politics, pop culture, and world events, yeah. but we don't know beyond that what the nope. specific viewpoints that were expressed were. Exactly. So I think that... I know this is one thing that I've talked to you a little bit about. I'm just going to talk about my own experiences yeah. a little bit. Um, is that with this podcast, I have... So I, I, I do this podcast and we do the, the blog post, and then I also stream on the Geek Therapy Twitch channel once a week on Tuesdays. And then we have the Rick and Morty podcast, too, which is kind of just an offshoot of this podcast mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And Geek Therapy is the podcast network that we're on. Yep, absolutely. So those are kind of... Oh, and then I have my own personal Twitter account. So that's kind of all of my social media presence. And then a, a Facebook page, I guess, but no, not really on there too much. And so that's kind of all of my social media presence. And I know I've talked to you a little bit about, um, as I've kind of... I'm, I'm starting internship here in, in a month and a half and I'm moving towards the direction of a clinical career, and talk to you a little bit about, you know, having that presence. But the main thing that I've kind of thought about this or wondered about is uh, feeling like, is it a little bit silly to kind of like want to be a professional or want to be a psychologist, but be streaming video games on the internet or be talking about superheroes, which is just maybe related to my own sign of in, own sort of insecurity or or kind of as I'm trying to develop a professional identity, I guess. But those have kind of been my main concerns, which have mostly uh, have just come up every once in a while. And really, I've don't bother me too much because I think that at least for our show, it's really rooted in science because that's one of kind of the core values that you and I share. And a lot of the views that we uh, kind of have, which are, are fairly limited on the show, really it's just about talking about fictional characters. We we talked about Donald Trump in one episode a very long time ago, and basically all that we talked about was the Goldwater rule and said we're not going to talk about Donald Trump or any uh, person in real life. That's why we're kind of doing fictional characters. So Yeah, we talked about the controversy surrounding whether you can diagnose public yeah, figures. Exactly. I'm rambling in a really big way. Uh, but I guess the the main take home that I'm trying to send is that I think that the show that oh and we also I should mention please. there was we did a trends like these which is a podcast oh, we yeah. both like and there was an issue in the news about IQs and since that's yeah. kind of within the area of study that we have where it the, it was reported that some well there was IQ discussion I mean yeah. uh, Trump brings up IQ as kind of something fairly that he's brought up fairly regularly so we talked about intelligence testing and things like yeah. that but your point is that what you're saying what I'm hearing Please. is that is that um when we're talking about things they're pretty clearly linked to clinical psychology mm-hmm. it's not our main point is not to talk about news but more right. to talk about news and link it to evidence-based information about the constructs that are being discussed exactly and so i guess i i in my interviews for you know practicum positions or things like that 
uh, the podcast never really came up directly, but I have talked about it with clinical supervisors while I've been on practicum before, and they've all responded very positively to kind of the efforts of our show. And I know more than a couple of them I've seen at least like kind of like the Facebook page and keep up with the show. So I think that the underlying take-home message, which I'm, is actually something you wrote in the show notes already, content is really the key, I think, is, is one thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I think, and and without, so is there content we can imagine, and they talked about this in the Black Goat, mm-hmm. that might negatively affect your employability? I think that's true in any field, and mm-hmm. I think that I'm more cautious about mm-hmm. My views in light of the fact that even though I'm so I should say my position is I'm a tenured professor so I'm I really have a lot of protection nonetheless in my research it involves being able to work with people in the community and um, other people who are in clinical work I also have interest in doing some clinical work and so it's still possible that I would consider whether I would be employable or other people Mm -hmm. would want to work with me based on what I say. And I take a lot of consideration of that when we're putting our shows together. And so we do speak out about issues that come up that we feel are relevant to mental health, like Mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act is something that clearly linked to, you know, mental health care and something that I personally feel very passionately about. And so there are some of those things that we do talk about and put out there. It's possible that someone with differing views would be opposed to that, but I feel like there's more leeway on some of those issues versus if someone was talking about content that is frankly has bigotry involved, or if they're talking about a group of clients that they wouldn't work with, or as was mentioned in the Black Goat, if you're perpetuating false ideas about mental Mm -hmm. illness and, and things like that, or also just seeming like you don't know what you're talking about, right? You could say if you're, if you're just speculating and so as Brennan mentioned, when we're talking about fictional characters, so if we have a reaction episode after we saw the movie Wonder Woman, I don't think that people, like you said, at worst, hopefully would think that's kind of silly. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I don't think people will think that reflects on my competence because I'm not presenting it as though this is like, me as a psychologist, it's me as a Wonder Woman fan (laughs) and me speculating. And the fictional character part was a pretty conscious effort in our decisions to be able to talk about these serious mental health issues, but in a context that is somewhat removed and that is, is kind of a little more abstract, which I guess we should say is the other point of it. So part of the reason that we do this podcast is I I actually just really enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. It's a great activity. So that's part of it. I didn't know that going into it. I mean, I figured it would be fun. Yeah. I didn't know it'd be as, as fun as, as I like it, um, as much as I like it now. But the other part of it is that the, the real goal was actually to disseminate mental health information. And this is something that's really big in the field, is the idea that we have some of the scientific information. We have some treatments that are shown to help for certain conditions, but how do we connect people with that information? And so looking at other people in the field who I respect a great deal, other clinical psychologists, they've done things like podcasts, YouTube videos, um, self-help books, where they try to pull in these interesting fictional characters and relay information in that context. And so I think that, like you're saying, I've received some positive feedback for that, the idea that this is part of outreach or part of Mm -hmm. what we're doing to say, you know, I'm not just going to keep this information 
inaccessible to the yeah. public. And and that is the main motivator for doing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I've commented on this a little bit in the past too, and I think this is maybe only tangentially related. It's Friday, so forgive me for rambling a bit. But I, another that's thing... That's what podcasts are for, that's which is true. why I like them so much. Yeah, they just get to <laughs> have the ramble times. Uh, is that uh, what I really like about our approach as as just one of many great approaches, focusing on the fictional characters is, as, and like I've made clear before, I really don't care that much if I get a specific detail about the characters wrong, and I think that's a little bit freeing in a way, because we can really focus on... Uh, on citing accurate and relevant research or covering uh, specific diagnostic criteria, which is important. And, of course, we're always very uh, cautious and thorough to make sure we're getting that part accurate. And then we get to do that through the lens of these examples that, uh, you know, like I've, I use Batman as an example a lot where it's like 75 years of content. Uh, you could frame the character in any which way you wanted, but it's just a nice way for us to be able to disseminate this information in a way that is is a bit detached, and we don't have to be so nitty-gritty on the details of the character. We can focus on the nitty-gritty details of the science and mental health. Right, and so it might be, for some people, maybe they're not that interested in hearing me talk about randomized clinical trials, but they want that, but they are interested in hearing, did Buffy the Vampire Slayer have some depression experiences in season six or something right. like that. Exactly. So, so that's the goal. Now, I will say part of this are, is obviously individual differences. So there are some friends I have that are primarily clinicians that they keep um, everything private, Twitter, Facebook, or they'll use a different name and they'll kind of be anonymous as and have told me explicitly, you know, if they're in private practice and they don't want people to think that you know, this therapist can't work with me because mm-hmm. of their views, then, you know, so you see the full range, whereas other yeah. people, um, as was mentioned in Black Goat 2, in certain positions, it might be seen as beneficial that you are taking strong political mm-hmm. stances. There might be organizations that want you there or clients that are particularly drawn to you for that. So part of this where I do think it's an interaction with also our personalities is, mm. so we started this Rick and Morty podcast because we did a couple of episodes and people seemed interested in that. And so then we decided to make that as a secondary podcast, but the show is super crass and oh, like yeah. way out there. So actually when we podcast about it, I think partially our personalities, but also a part of like considering professionalism, <laughs> we often just like take the most mild oh, yeah. point in it and go somewhere. So I don't want it to sound like I don't, like we we are pretty careful about monitoring oh, yeah. ourselves, you know? And I think part of that is being just conscious of what other people might think. Yeah. But even as a professor, I think about you know, I want my students to be perceived as being treated fairly. I want my clients to perceive that. I don't think that, I think it's wrong to think that you have to have a therapist or a teacher who has identical views to you for them to treat you correctly. I mean, in clinical training, we're explicitly trained about checking ourselves and our biases. That doesn't mean we're perfect at it, but we're we're taught, and most of us are highly motivated to work with people who have differing views. But as we talked about, you can imagine there are certain type of content where it's beyond that. Like if someone thinks that someone doesn't deserve equal rights or something, that that might affect, that affects your view of that person, right? And so so I I think it's complicated. I do think some of it's personal preference, but I think early on in, in career, it's, I guess the 
the safer approach, if you will, is to find a balance where you're happy, you're comfortable, you're doing things that you like, but just being aware that the realistic consequence, whether it's fair or not, is that some people will look into it and they might make decisions. My guess is most people aren't going to tell you about it even, you know, I think that's pretty common to look someone up. But I'll also say a lot of my clients and students, they aren't they aren't looking for information about me. Right. I mean, I think that occasionally has happened to me, but um, a lot of them, you know, they're pretty focused on like, can you help me with this treatment? And they're yeah. going based on interpersonal vibes and stuff. But as Brennan and I talked about, that's because we're not, our podcast isn't wildly popular no. and we're not huge public figures. So I could imagine it would be different for sure. if that were the case. So, yeah. I know Grace, a friend of mm-hmm. our show, followed up too on on the Twitter thread and asked about just social media presences mm-hmm. in general, which we both have on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, thinking about that a little bit, and I know some people, like one of my lab mates and colleagues, she just has her Twitter completely private, and it's it's more of just a completely personal one. My Twitter, I try to. One thing that I've tried to do less of is be sarcastic on there which is my personality in a lot of ways um, and try to focus more on just tweeting about interesting science stuff or things related to uh, just other projects I'm working on. So I don't know. That's another thing that I've thought about too is, is that uh, just being careful on those personal ones, I guess about, I mean, you can imagine getting into a situation where if, I don't know, it's, it's complicated. The world is complicated. I'll just leave it at that. And there's a lot of differing ideas and, and ideologies right now. So just, just especially as early career folks, I think just be careful what you put out there, I guess. You know, I, I think I try to think about what would my clients think if they saw this. And so even if I'm taking a stance on a particular issue, I try to, I do try to put it in a measured way. Yeah. And Uh, We've talked about this before, like if I think of something funny, but it might sound mocking or something like that, I I think about what it looks to outsiders because another part of it is I want our profession to look well, something that to look like we, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to look professional and that we care about. But one thing that stuck with me when I was in graduate school that my graduate mentor taught us was that was basically like if you're out at a bar, don't talk about your clients. It might, yeah. That might seem obvious, but people are, you know, people talk about their work all the time yeah. and stuff like that. And I have seen these cases where people on social media have complained about their clients oh, sure. or, and it, or they've complained about a patient and there have been some high profile cases on that. And it's just hard to trust someone as a professional who's supposed to keep things confidential if you have that attitude mm-hmm. or if you're using those terms that are kind of stigmatizing to people. I think the ways that I, so the way I mostly monitor it is one is like I try to be even in the way that I say things and link them to evidence when I, when I, but I still speak out about things that I feel are misconceptions, especially areas that I have, have focused a lot of my work on like suicide prevention and eating disorders. The other thing that I do is after hearing actually, um, psychologist, uh, professor Jay Van Babel was on circle of Willis podcast. And he talked about how he has an app that deletes his tweets after three months, just because context change and Mm -hmm. you don't know what something's going to look like. And so I, after hearing that, I, I added that app. And so my old tweets get deleted too. 
And again, it's not because I suspect there's something that someone's going to find that's super problematic, but you just never know in the context of the moment, especially how quickly things move on Twitter, yeah. that something might be taken. I'm not saying other people should do that, but that's something that I do, even though when I, I'm in a fairly privileged position having a tenured job and yeah. stuff like that. So this is kind of a back and forth and lots of different thoughts yeah. on it. But I think anytime we do talk about stuff that's world events or political, you and I especially talk about what are what are the confines of what we're going to say. Yeah. That being said, I have a lot of respect for other people who don't do that, who just freely speak yeah. as, as much of their personal opinions as they want. So there's an individual difference factor, but it is practical to be thinking ahead because the internet is forever yeah. often about what people would might think if they see that and kind of trying to conduct things that are close to your values. One other thing I'll mention is when I was in graduate school, we had a somewhat related discussion of um, some of the grad students were on doing online dating apps yeah. and um, or online dating sites. And they were worried if their clients might see them, especially if you're in a relatively smaller area. And the decision was basically like, you shouldn't not date because you might, yeah. your client might see your profile, like you're a person. And if they see that, you can have a discussion with them if they want to about what that means or whatever the thing that they're interested in is. But it is that balance of like, yeah. you don't, you're still a person and you yeah. shouldn't completely, especially with how social media is. So that was kind of a long-winded response. <laughs> it was. We're 20 response. minutes in, one but question down. If anyone out there wants to talk more about more specifics, then feel free to email us, tweet us, or anything like that. And the take-home is it's complex, but be mindful, which is not very specific advice, but, um, you know, that's, the, that's what advice. I got. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next question. Um, so I saved people's Twitter handles uh, as a way to say thank you or just a reference who submitted the questions. So I but not whatever they have their Twitter name as. And I don't even know. Is the Twitter handle what comes after the app? I don't know the Twitter lingo, Katie. But here I we, don't know. I don't know yet. I'm just doing my best here. After all this discussion on social media, I'm <laughs> revealing my, my lack of knowledge. So submitted by Twitter user at... Holy, I'm just going to spell that, W-H-O-O-L-E-E. -E. They asked us, do you think pop culture can be doing more to promote accurate views of mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, etc.? Um, what do we think? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I should probably expand on that. Um, you accidentally scrolled up. Oh, oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so there's actually been some discussion of this, I guess, in terms of one of the approaches that Brendan and I have is we try to correct an accurate, in our view, to mm -hmm. this state of current knowledge, accurate information about mental health problems. We often use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a guide, which is the classification for mental health problems, often used by us and in the United States. And they're essentially, it is our goal, therefore, to even though it is flawed, there are, mm -hmm. there are problems with it, it'll evolve over time, and significant things to pay attention to. There are some benefits to it, and it is a current classification system, so we'll often take something that's presented, like Jessica Jones, for example, is presented explicitly as having post-traumatic stress disorder. And we talked about that as an example of what we felt was a very accurate 
representation of it. And so there's that kind of way, like, are the symptoms accurate? Is the way the person's acting accurate? But on the other hand, something that's been brought up is that often people have different presentations in terms of like, so if they go to a therapist and the therapist isn't doing an evidence-based treatment, that doesn't mean it's inaccurate in the sense that that doesn't happen a lot Mm -hmm. in the real world. People do go to therapists and receive all kinds of different types of treatment. And so what our goal is because, because it kind of leans more towards media representations lean away from evidence-based treatments Mm -hmm. in my humble experience in watching these things I mean, I can't think of a single depiction of, like, cognitive behavioral therapy explicitly. Not explicitly. The closest thing I'm thinking of that's even semi-related is, and I don't think it's explicit, is the, and for, as usual, qualify that I don't like the name of this show very much, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with dialectical behavior therapy. And you'll have to forgive me as well. I don't remember if they even explicitly say that that's they what it is. They don't, but okay. I think it might have been due to not being allowed to. Oh, like, that makes I sense. think that right. that's why, more why they referenced it. So usually what we're... So in, in other words, we're trying to fill that gap. That's usually mm-hmm. our goal. And what I see is, is less known. Bring some of that information and put it out into the public. So in a way, I think that it's important to have that those accurate representations however it's not their responsibility in a sense Mm -hmm. that it's an art form and they're kind of trying to tell a story and that's their primary thing their primary goal is not to do a lecture on what dialectical behavior therapy looks like so that's where we're trying to blend those things basically engage people by talking about this fictional character that maybe they care about or when i'm when i'm teaching abnormal psychology i'll show them videos of people experiencing these things and try to get them interested in that way so that they have an accurate and compassionate view so i i think there is more that can be done i mean an, a counter example would be 13 reasons why i watched some of the second season you didn't no i haven't watched any yet you, and if, i may not yeah and yeah. if you've heard our three episodes on the first season. I I do think there were some irresponsible things in there. Now, technically, are they required or obliged as fictional writers trying to get people to watch shows to do that, to do something more accurate or healthy? I I mean, I don't think they are, but it would be nice if they did. And especially because I think they explicitly tried to say that that's what they were trying to do. And so as an example of that, like the whole premise of the show was someone who's basically has killed themselves and is it's a revenge thing where there's this long thing where they're telling everyone how they played the part in causing her death. And so there were some concerns about that, um, concerns about the graphic depiction, concerns about romanticizing things. So, and all, all that's to say is, yeah, I think they can do more, mm-hmm. but I understand it's a fine line because that's not their primary goal. Yeah. I'm, I'm of the same mind. Um, maybe unsurprisingly, but I'm reminded of a conversation I had recently with uh, a friend of mine um, just talking about about the depictions of mental health in shows. And, and this person said, you know, that's not their job is to depict accurate information. That's they're trying to tell a story. And oftentimes when we talk about these, uh, I think that we qualify our when we bring accurate or different information uh, to these stories and we often say you know I get that they're trying to tell a story they're trying to provide this narrative they're not explicitly trying to say this and for the most part I I agree that the responsibility isn't with um, you know filmmakers or or whomever Um, but I think it is important that if 
people who are creating these things get feedback that what they've created uh, has the potential to be harmful, that they respond responsibly to that. Um, I think, you know, if if you find out a show that you've made is harming people, I think that's a lot different than you know depicting a sh you know i am thinking of other examples where the the information might not be accurate but it sort of doesn't matter as right. much um relative to things that really we know that it, it can hurt people yeah and it, it's also the idea that there's this dichotomy or something like you can't you, you can't make something interesting and accurate which is just that's not true right, right. i mean there are a lot of very interesting mm -hmm. ways that you could weave things in i mean i think about even some of the reality shows that mm -hmm. show like exposure to obsessive compulsive disorder yeah. they make it very dramatic or mm -hmm. intervention but they manage to get some of those evidence-based types treatments out there and so i feel like maybe it's not their obligation legally and they have people right. side that or they're they're as artists they're not obliged but like kind of as a person i think that yeah. it would be nice if they did that and I, another thing I want to point out too is that I don't mean, I think sometimes this maybe happens is that I've maybe come off a little negatively about uh, media a little bit in some of these depictions. I think there are a lot of people making really good content with the intent of starting discussions that that is good, helpful content, not like, for example, 13 Reasons Why, in my opinion. For example, DC Comics is starting a new thing uh the first issue comes out like next week and i'm forgetting the exact name of it but it's this whole it's legion isn't it no i'm thinking of the show but it's that looks good too uh, <laughs> that's a different mental health one uh and and then this is all about just the heroes uh kind of coming to terms with the trauma and if and the effects of the things that they've experienced and, and done and just realizing that they really need to get help for some of this and it looks really quite good so i think there's a lot of creators doing a lot of good too i wanted to make that point yeah and i think the majority of our episodes like some of them are more critical like the 13 reasons yeah. why but most of them are a little bit more mixed i think so you know overall i think that like i said with jessica jones i think that did a lot to help people understand what ptsd can look mm -hmm. like i mean it was just such a realistic and compassionate depiction and also her alcohol dependence like she's one of the people who struggles with substance use problems who actually is hung over and forgets things and gets into dangerous situations yeah. you know you actually see some of that stuff so i think that's helpful and you know i think well even Darth Vader, like we've talked about that, like it's not, they didn't set out probably to depict him as having a narcissistic personality disorder, but nonetheless, like they have created this complex character who has some really appalling features, oh, yeah. but also has some like sense of where he got there, mm -hmm. you know, for the people who acknowledge the prequels, I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but also the sense that there's some redemption when they think yeah. that there's not so obviously i mean overall we're huge fans of media but um yeah i think i mean i think there's a difference between a personal and professional obligation and i don't think it's easy and i don't make that stuff i don't no. i don't make yeah. i make podcasts yeah. so <laughs> so and and i so i mean i think I, I admire them for doing that anyway. I think there are interesting ways to work together and do this. And as we've talked about before, they're, like people do pay more attention. You know, when I'm teaching abnormal psychology, a lot of the ideas about dissociative identity disorder are from movies. They're more from Split than from whatever article on it. Oh, absolutely. I, I very specifically remember a student asking me in response to that mm -hmm. movie, 
do people experience physiological changes, like for example, changes in height? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that and this was someone who was in college who just got that idea from that movie. So yeah, yeah, you know, people get ideas there. That's know. and the other thing I've had people ask me about is therapists um, falling in love with their clients or having yeah. romantic relationships and not realizing that you're not supposed to do that. That's so common. I think it's yes. almost like a trope, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, The Departed definitely has mm-hmm. that, but there are some other ones too, and Absolutely. it's not even depicted as like that problematic often not at all. in them. Um, and you know, that's an issue because can you imagine if you're considering going to therapy and you think there's not some boundary around having a romantic right. relationship? I don't know. It's not great. No. So I think, um, you know, those those types of things I, I think are important. And there was something like that also in The Sopranos, wasn't there? Never watched it. I didn't either. <laughs> but probably. <laughs> <laughs> and See? Oh, but you know what? I did watch some of the clip just to talk about that oh, because okay. I remember someone asked me about it. Yeah. All right. Should we move to our next question? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, sounds good. So our next question uh, submitted via Twitter by at Jonathan. You don't want to do a 12-hour episode? No, (laughs) but we're on track for it for sure because we have a lot of questions left. But they're all good, so I don't feel bad about it. Uh, Do people seek out fictional characters or heroes that may have the same mental health, uh, whether the character states it or not, to make themselves feel less alone in the world? Uh, Short answer, I very much believe that to be the case. Um, I'm thinking specifically of a long time ago, thinking of the the uh, Comicspedia uh, resource online, which is a resource full of comic books uh, organized either by topic of disorder or, or challenging life event or by character, and therapists can go on and use these in session uh, with clients because I think that that having fictional characters who you can identify with who are experiencing similar problems can be a very powerful um, sort of uh, way to kind of feel less alone or feel like the problem that you're experiencing is conquerable or normalized as one example of many where this is used. Yeah, I, I would speculate similarly. I mean, I think something that we've both talked about, you know, is, you know, if I there's something I really value, compassion, truth, things like that, those are emulated in Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And I might, this isn't specific to a mental health issue, but this is more like a fictional character that I I find value affirming and reading about that or that I feel connected with. At least those are some ideals that that I try to, that I would try to aim for that Mm -hmm. I believe are important, justice and peace and things like that. So in reading some of that, even though clearly, she's clearly a fictional character, Mm -hmm. it still can act as a way at least anecdotally to me to feel like um, being in touch with some of my values, but also just being interested in someone who has similar kind of a story that, that I resonate with. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's part of that too. That's just kind of a preference thing or something that you connect with. One very specific and very powerful example I'm thinking of sitting right on the bookshelf behind us uh, by Paul Dini, which is his graphic novel, and it's called A Dark Knight, A Real Batman Story. Mm-hmm. Something like that. I may be mixing it up. It's been a while since I read it. But what's really cool about this graphic novel is Paul writes about his experiences uh, after he was mugged. And then he really goes through what seems to be probably a depressive episode. And it's really, it's just beautiful the way he writes about these experiences. But he incorporates uh, characters from the Batman mythos into that 
and kind of in a way tells the story of how those characters really helped him pull through this really challenging period in his life and i think it really provides a perfect example of someone who used characters to to feel connected and to move forward and then use that whole experience to kind of illuminate that process and how it might work yeah so i think this is one of the ones we're not giving hard data on this but i would speculate that people choose art that they connect with and serve some positive psychological functions hopefully not as drawn to the ones that that serve negative mood functions and stuff like that and uh, I've talked about that with music before, and I certainly find fictionally, at least anecdotally, we've heard a lot of stories about how people have connected with these characters. And um, we recently had the absolute privilege of interviewing Dr. Janina Scarlett, who's a psychologist who teaches things like acceptance commitment therapy through comics and narratives and, and things that people connect with. And I just think it, it makes sense. There's something about us and human nature that connects to stories about these things. Mm-hmm. So makes sense that we seek that stuff out. All right. Any last thoughts on that one? Nope. Okay. Let's keep cruising. So our next question uh, submitted uh, via Twitter um, at willbronier 36 uh, asks, do you think grieving is a mental health process? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. For uh, a more in-depth discussion of grief if you go back to i think it's our batman versus superman kind of take two it was where we had been podcasting for one full year and we came back and we talked about bruce wayne and some of the uh you know pretty complex grief that he's experiencing or experiences uh as an adult that's really goes largely unprocessed uh throughout his whole life um that's one example where we've talked about this in the past but but short answer yeah i think that that the process of moving through grief uh, is a mental health process. Yeah, you know, mental health should be distinguished from mental disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Mental health, like physical health, we all have it, and it's within different ranges. And, and grief has been perceived differently. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. there are definitely cultural influences and things that uh, for it used to be that you couldn't be diagnosed with mm-hmm. depression if um, well you could be but it would take more to if you had recently experienced a loss they had mm-hmm. a certain time limit and there it's the idea of complicated bereavement so there's kind of a typical now it varies a lot mm-hmm. between people grieving process that that people go through and sometimes that can get disrupted and mm-hmm. they can call it complicated and that might might require therapy or some other type of way to get through it. But regardless, there are implications for one's own mental health as they grieve the person. It's going to depend on the relationship, how they lost that person, and and all kinds of factors. But to lose someone, I mean, that's... You hear people talking about grieving uh, for years and years mm-hmm. after that happens. And... The grief changes over time is what I hear from people that have mm-hmm. experienced these, these. I mean, I have experienced some losses too. Um, but I think that it's something that certainly involves, it can affect your view of the world. It can affect your view of yourself. You can just, just missing that person that meant so much to you, you can feel more disconnected. And so it is It is something that involves mental health processes mm-hmm. for sure. It's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. Really good. Uh 
Moving on, our next question submitted uh, on Twitter or via Twitter at uh, Chelsea Elizab, kind of a shortening of the names there. Uh, do you believe slash agree with the idea or theory that many people who get into mental health work have their own mental health struggles? I think this is kind of what's the right word for it? Is it a, a truism, not a myth, or one of those uh, wherein it's an idea? It's an idea. <laughs> Uh, where that's, that's, that's my very sophisticated like, way of labeling. It. Why use complicated words? That, yeah, an idea that that you know people. What the, are, the, Brandon's saying that because people have told us that one. Well, we've been told that one word is more accurate than the other. Yeah, in particular. But we situations. didn't fully understand it. So I still don't. Okay, just to be honest, so that's why I used both. And, and but I appreciate Cover the feedback. Bases. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, I'm thinking of the word I'm thinking of because this same question gets asked in research too in academia that they call me search kind of a yeah, fun play on words there yeah, yeah for sure so I'm it's unsurprising of course that the same sort of idea exists uh, in in mental health when we think of you know maybe clinical work as well or people who pursue uh, mental health as a career. And I think that it, it's very probably very possible, but certainly not exclusively why people pursue mental health careers. Yeah, I, I guess I try to push back on this a little bit. I haven't seen a very good empirical investigation, mm -hmm. but if anyone out there listening has, please send it to me. I don't think this is speculation based on what little I've seen that is true that there are higher rates of mental mm -hmm. illness among people who pursue careers in mental health. I think that there are certain fields where, like in addiction, people view, like if you've been through addiction yourself, mm -hmm. sometimes people think then you'll be able to be more helpful. Sometimes it's been referred to as the wounded healer. You know, you've, you've been through it, so you can help this and you're trying to fix yourself. But people get into it for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a family member. Sometimes they're fascinated by the puzzle because it's mm -hmm. really difficult to measure some of these psychological phenomena and, and intervene. Some people, you know, have a passion for helping people with, with these types of things, and they're all different types of pathways. And then there are, of course, rates of mental health problems in a lot of other non-mental health related mm -hmm. fields that have been discussed. I mean, people have looked at things like medical doctors mm -hmm. or in fire departments or in all all kinds of other areas so i don't think that that correlation i would guess is as tight as right. is suggested and the thing that i get a little concerned about it's a balance right because on one hand your passion can come from your personal experiences but also a lot of what we're trying to do is not dependent on our personal experiences. No. We can't be separated from them, but we're trying to work with people and empathize with people who haven't had the exact same experiences as, as us. Otherwise it's going to be very limited. And I don't feel like there's that same standard in say like physical medicine right. where it's like, you have to have been through this thing. So in order to help me. And so that's part of it. And then the other thing is I think that it can, um, take away from some of the ideals of using science to better understand mental health and to better understand treatment, which is that the process is just all driven by your own personal yeah. experiences and those types of things. So, so my guess is it's not that different from some other fields. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. But I, I would guess commonalities you might find more in uh, wanting to help people or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. 
Uh, this next one. Not that there are pe- a lot of people out there that don't want to help others, but I mean, there are some people who like want to do direct hey, service it's a stuff. Subgroup of people. They're very specific. <laughs> they're very small. No, it's... like people want to help in all kinds of ways, and including in other areas of psychology. But at least I've been told directly by some people that don't want to go into clinical psychology that they want to help, but in a more abstract way than sitting with someone while they're talking about so, their problems. I want to just clarify what yeah. you're saying. Only clinical psychologists can help people. <laughs> This is going to get played back to me at some point when I'm trying to work in a clinical position, and I'm going to regret this. Well, I'm just—it's a selfish because you'll have sent them this clip. It's a selfish sabotage to make sure you always have enough time to do this show. Uh, Okay, let's move to our next one. Submitted via no one more point. No, go ahead. Sorry, I don't mean to drag. No, you're one other thing. I I think maybe relate to that first question. Part of the reason that I do love podcasting, I'll mention this too, is because you can talk about nuance and discussion and yeah. blog posts in a much bigger way than like a 280 character yeah, tweet sure. and so when i try to talk about issues that i i think are like that i like having this outlet for talking about Absolutely. it um versus some of other social media it's much harder to get the context or mm-hmm. what you mean by one thing oh completely i'm the word impossible is pretty strong, yeah. but sometimes I feel like it's impossible to have any nuance in social media, be it Facebook or Twitter. And Facebook, you don't even have the word limit, but still a lot of the time it can be these tricky. things are missed. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's public in this way. It's public, but people are kind of listening to us have a conversation versus like if you're debating someone about something and you know people are watching, yes. that might impact. Well, it probably does impact the way that you're talking about things. Absolutely. So. Okay. Okay. Are we ready? Yeah. More chatting. I, it's what I'm all about. <laughs> so our next uh, question submitted via Twitter by, uh, well, how would you say this Twitter handle? I'd spell it. Okay. I'm going to do that <laughs> then because I'm just going to do it. G-I-A-N-M-I-N-N-I. G-N-Mini. I, who I has it. a lot of, who I recommend following. Lots so good. Of thoughtful discussion, tweets, in-depth reading. Thoughtful is the the critical word in yeah. my uh, opinion and interesting and kind of fun but all the others too but <laughs> yeah really i take it back there's not one critical word to sum up uh this twitter experience yeah okay the question is uh what do you guys think about some pieces of media that portray characters who present as mentally ill but show no features of any specific mental illness and then in parentheses i'd like to nominate it's such a beautiful day for a discussion I've not seen or consumed the media known as It's Such a Beautiful Day. Me either. So maybe we maybe we post it, note that one, as a future topic that might be worthy of discussion um, to return to. Without the context of It's Such a Beautiful Day, I have to be- admit I'm having a hard time thinking of a specific example of a character what who... about 13 Reasons Why? Because Hannah doesn't, isn't presented as having a specific well, problem, is she? So I mean, she dies by suicide. As mentally ill, but shows no features of mental illness. Maybe it's implied that it's depression. Wait, present as mentally ill. So yeah, you're right. That is hard to think about. Because yeah. to help me make sure I'm framing this right, the idea would be it would be someone who's presenting as depressed but is showing no symptoms, as an example, right? That's how I first read it. But now that I'm reading it again, no, no features of a specific mental illness oh. so maybe they're showing some symptoms but it's kind of oh interesting it's, so it's I not it otherwise specified sure kind of thing okay so then that might be that would probably be a lot of depictions then right where yeah. they're maybe like having 
it's never it's never stated explicitly this person is experiencing a major depressive uh disorder but maybe they're they're struggling with some things you're right it is kind of tricky because i think about the i'm thinking about the things that are most frequently depicted to in my mind mm-hmm. anyway antisocial personality mm-hmm. disorder and there's like a real clear behavioral symptom part of that they're mm-hmm. they're doing crimes and lying mm-hmm. and all that other stuff obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. i've seen a few times and they're like explicitly you see their compulsions mm-hmm. Substance use problems, mm-hmm. usually shown by them getting way intoxicated yep. and other issues. Some of the depression, unhappiness. So, like, I guess one other thing I thought of is Girl Interrupted. So she is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in that the movie shows a couple things. Like, there's a suicide attempt. And there's some hints at things. It's not super clear. So I don't know if that would qualify. Sure. So we'll have to get back after seeing it's such a beautiful day. But I do think that... Okay, I thought of one other thing. Okay. And I, I'm obviously this is stream of consciousness. The best just in kind case of that podcast. Was, in case that wasn't clear. The other thing that we do with our podcast is have numerous disclaimers on our website before and after. And few to no editing skills. <laughs> <laughs> So keep that in mind when taking our advice. But, um, but so I think what happens in, in my mind more often is like someone is shown as having symptoms, but they're not labeled as having right. a specific mental illness. Like I was thinking of Big Bang Theory and how they think that Sheldon like has an autism spectrum disorder, but they don't refer to him that way. Mm-hmm. And yet they pick certain things that might be viewed as symptoms as that. So... Um, short story long, <laughs> uh, we'll have to get back to you, but so, I, I, I do think things are super blurry. That's going to be my, my yeah. main take home point. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sit on this question a little okay. bit. And, and That's what I should have done instead of thinking it all the way I through liked, aloud. I liked that. That was fun. Uh, that was fun to just sort of experience firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't really get enough of me thinking aloud about things. Uh, okay. So we're. We've got three questions left. I'm going to jump around a little bit here, which no one knows except for you, Katie, because you're watching me scroll. Uh, we're going to jump, <laughs> jump to the end here. Except everyone knows. Now just they told know. Them. Uh, so uh, submitted via Twitter uh, by at Starry Night three one six three, who is one of the folks who is kind enough to join me every week for my Geek Therapy Twitch streaming. Thank you, Starry. Uh, and I, we've already sort of talked about this one, but I, to touch base again, what degree of responsibility does pop culture slash media have in accurate representations of mental health and therapy? I know some representations are exaggerated for media or narrative, but I wonder if they consider consequences of what they show. And we sort of already have, have talked about that. I don't, do you have anything else to add beyond they don't have a professional or legal responsibility, but maybe they should think about it a little? One thing I'll add is that there's some evidence suggesting it's not crystal clear but again 13 reasons why just because it was so widely watched i'm going to keep referring back to it but there is at least one site which i can link to in the journal of the american medical association that showed an increase of searches for suicide following the show now people aren't sure what does that mean was it like suicidal thoughts was it suicide prevention we don't know what it means except Mm -hmm. that the timing pretty clearly coincides with when it came out there could be another variable but i mean it's pretty striking when you look at google and the searches going up. oh yeah so there seems to be some effect the other thing is just listening to clinicians saying that their clients are coming in 
and talking about uh, cutting themselves because this character on the show did that. And we're not saying the show's responsible for mm-hmm. it, but maybe for certain people that might be vulnerable or mm-hmm. relate to a character and they hear someone talking about it in a particular way, like that it's helping them feel better, mm-hmm. they might, maybe they'll give it a try. It's very hard to study these things empirically, but it's worth listening to what therapists are saying mm-hmm. their clients are coming in to say or what people are talking about, mm-hmm. like what are their students in high school or middle school talking about, and then responding to that. And I think that mental health practitioners, a lot of them did a great job at, at helping with these types of things by developing a toolkit, which we can link to. So in other words, I would say, you know, similar to what we said, it's it's hard to believe there aren't consequences to a very broadly watched show that evokes very strong emotions in a lot of people. I don't think most people on average are that affected by watching a show, but maybe in small, important ways they mm-hmm. are, maybe in their perceptions of mental health problems. And for vulnerable people, they might be more impacted. And season two does a better job at telling people, like, if you're in a vulnerable state, maybe don't watch the show that shows explicit sexual assaults, mm-hmm. you know? And that, of course, this happens in a lot of other shows too. Mm-hmm. And there's broader discussion about whether representations affect how people view romantic relationships, mm-hmm. sexual relationships. And so, there are consequences, and as we've talked about before, part of the reason we talk about these things in our show is because more people are going to see um, 13 Reasons Why than read one of my articles yeah. about probabilistic reasons of things that contribute to suicide prevention. And so I think the more that we connect those communities and um, try to for psychologists and other mental health people to be involved in the making of these shows or be consulted at least or at least in responding to reactions, I think that'll be better overall for people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's kind of my, all I have to say on, about it, too. I don't yeah. have a lot to add from before. You know, a lot of a lot of stuff on TV, I know this is going to be surprising. It's Please. not accurate. Whoa. Hold on. <laughs> like that show House, as it turns out, um, all of those things aren't really how diagnostics yeah. take place. Can I take a second to talk about House? Sure. I have three seasons of House sitting behind us, which are actually yours. That I, have <laughs> I was like, I used to have <laughs> yeah. five nor four. <laughs> They're all on Amazon Prime now, too, oh, okay. so I could give those back to you That's anytime. Right. No rush. I used to like House a lot when I was mm-hmm. younger. I don't like it as much anymore. It's like, I just, I think it's, when I was younger, I just really valued, like, hyper-intelligence, but now I'm, like, really valued just being cool and, like, nice to people once yeah. in a while. Yeah. And House has a lot of, like, chances at redemption and never takes them ever once that's my side note about house no it is amazing how you revisit those things because i i think i was in grad school when it was on i was like man so good with the diagnosing <laughs> yeah. of the, even though like even oh, yeah. a lot of that stuff isn't realistic and i was like so good with the sarcasm and stuff mm-hmm. like that but yeah he's not super nice no, <laughs> but it's and it, it's also i mean that is the cliche recurring theme of like like, the genius, he's a jerk, but we're going to tolerate yeah. him because he's so special. And it's like, I don't, I don't like that. Nah. <laughs> That's why I like Wonder Woman. She's real kind. Yeah, for sure. Real strong and awesome and kind. Okay. We've got two questions left. Okay. They were both submitted via email by a friend of the show, Michaela P- uh, Pachowski, I think was how you pronounce that last name. And they're both really good questions. And I'm just going to read them uh, 
read the entire question and then we can unpack it because each one has sub questions in it. How does that sound? Okay. So the first question. With a PhD in clinical psychology, one receives training to be a researcher, professor, and clinician. I seem to recall one episode where Dr. Gordon mentioned being involved in clinical work in addition to being a researcher and professor. uh, professor. If I'm incorrect about this, I apologize. Most professionals I know in this field seem to keep mostly to research and teaching or clinical work and not both. And so I would love to hear about your experience with balancing all those different aspects and what led to your decision to be involved in all these different areas. And if I'm incorrect about this, what led to your decision to be involved in only certain aspects? And then the second part of the question is specifically for me, so I'll stop there. This is a fantastic question, and I think some of it's changed over time, but I'll I'll give some of my perspective. So actually, when I started graduate school, I I thought I wanted to be a full-time therapist. And then as I started doing more research, I got really interested in the scientist part of it, um, which I, they're compatible. I mean, I think ideally, this is another thing for my mentor, that the best therapists are all are scientists because of the way that they approach helping people and regularly evaluating treatment outcomes. So what I, what I personally found is that I got excited about the research and kind of there, especially in eating disorders and suicide prevention, although a lot of areas you could say this, we got to do better. We have some treatments that work well for certain conditions, but there's just so much room for improvement. And so I was really excited about the idea of being able to collaborate with others and, and improve the ways that we help people with those types of issues. I hadn't taught until I got my job as a professor. I ended up really enjoying teaching. And uh, it's definitely... A very valued aspect of my job, both mentoring graduate students and training graduate students. That means a lot to me, but also teaching undergraduate classes. I, that's that's meant a lot to me too. I like the clinical work that I do. What I found personally for me is that when I was the closest to doing clinical work full time, which was probably on internship, it was difficult for me, I think, to manage the level of, um, it was emotionally difficult working with a lot of people who had those concerns. It meant a lot to me, but I found that it was hard for me to, to stop thinking about it at the end of the day. Now I've heard since then that people have said when you get used to it and you've kind of worked in clinical work for your, for a while, it changes and you can have firmer boundaries about the limits of what you can do and can't do. But based on my experience of that, I knew that I wanted to continue to be connected to clinical work. I really value it. I think that it makes science much better if you have an aspect of of the people that you eventually want to impact and stuff like that. But I also thought that if I, if I did some different things like pushing on science and, and teaching and things like that, that I would maybe for me personally find strike a balance that felt like I could manage it a little bit more. So that's not exact. It's kind of based on my emotions as going through it, but that's, that's the way that I, I thought about it. Um, but it is important to me to not get rusty as a clinician because part of what I do is training students to be, to be therapists. And, and I also, like I said, I don't want to get out of touch. If I'm working on trying to understand eating disorders and working with people who have eating disorders is important to me because that's an important part of the process. So what I did early on 
as a professor, I volunteered at the counseling center on campus because that pre-tenure, it was, um, you know, the, the main, I guess, the highest priority is getting tenure and publishing things, grants, mm-hmm. and those are things that, that are prioritized. But I, I volunteered, you know, like four hours a week at the counseling center, and that allowed me to continue to work with people directly, keep up some of my clinical skills, but but also prioritize some of the other parts of my job, and I really enjoyed that. I've been lucky that I've been able to be involved with some research projects where people are actually testing new treatments for eating disorders, but they need a therapist on the trial. And so with that, it's kind of like I'm still in the research zone, but I'm able to do some direct clinical work. A lot of this shifted when I became a a parent because I just, I had less time. And so I had to minimize some of the things that I was doing to account for my schedule. But that's also changed as as uh, my kids get older. So it's kind of, it, it changes over time, I think, in terms of what I've been able to prioritize. And I think that me personally, I really like doing all of it. I've heard people say they don't like certain things or that, but for me, it, it works well to have kind of a mixture of those, those different things. And it's just part of my value as being clinical scientist is that I'm really doing each of those things. So it's not, it's kind of like I like doing it and I value it, so I wanna do it. But my advice, cause I haven't always been good about this, if you're seeking advice, is it's not always the best to do everything. (laughs) And so I've overdone it many times. And that's why I see when people decide to really focus on a certain domain and not others, because it can be easy to overextend yourself. And then you might not be great at any of those things or your own, just for your own mindset and well-being, it might not be the best. What a nice answer. Oh, that was good. (laughs) The second part of the question reads, Brandon, as you're approaching the end of your PhD, is this something you have thought about? If so, what sort of things are weighing into this decision for you? I'm sure everyone probably just heard that too. That was a race car that drove (laughs) by the window. Uh, Yeah, so I am, as folks who listen know, starting my internship in about a month and a half, almost exactly a month and a half from now, which is the final year of a PhD in clinical psychology. It's a full-time clinical position like Katie was just talking about. Um, and then after that, I'll have my PhD and then I have to decide what sort of jobs I want to apply to. Well, prior to that, but uh, you kind of get the point. Um, so when I started graduate school and, and before I was really interested in pursuing a, a research focused career, I got involved in a lab my junior year of my undergraduate and I really enjoyed it and did an honors thesis. And then I was fortunate enough to continue in the same lab into graduate school. So I've been working for the or with the same research advisor for about seven years now. And um, as I started graduate school, uh, that's when I started taking classes on specific interventions and, and then got to start practicum and, and start doing some clinical work. And as I got more involved in all these things, my, my uh, kind of main goal shifted in a lot of ways from wanting per- to pursue a research to clear- career to wanting to pursue a clinical career. Um, and there's a few different reasons for that, I think. And I've done a lot of talking with other people, and I've done a lot of reflection to sort of think about this. Um, and just kind of ranking my own strengths, I think that thinking about teaching clinical work and research, clinical work is probably my biggest strength. And that's not to say that I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be self-depreciating or say I'm bad at the other things. 
I really enjoy teaching and I really enjoy research as well. But at least with my experience doing clinical work on practicum, and, and I want to qualify that saying that's not full time, that's typically about 20 hours a week. So it's a different experience than doing a full time clinical position. So it's based on that right now. Um, I really found the most sort of fulfillment out of those experiences. Um, so just thinking about kind of what direction will I get the most kind of self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment out of, and what direction do I think I can use my position to do the most amount of good, I think that's the direction for me. So that's kind of what I'm leaning towards pretty strongly at this point um, in my PhD. And the nice thing is that at least I've, you know, I'm 10 years post PhD now, uh, almost in August will be 10 years, is even though it takes a long time to get trained to do all of those things, the nice thing is that there is some flexibility. So as I mentioned, as my priorities have changed, as my life in general has changed in different ways, as the point of in my career has changed and my interests have changed, I'm fortunate in that I've been able to reshape what I'm mm -hmm. doing. And similarly, I mean, for you too, Brandon, as, mm -hmm. you, as you go into that, you know, I've met people who they start off as clinicians, maybe they switch to doing more training mm -hmm. or they do part-time research or they teach. And so it's the nice thing about having been through all of that extra training in those areas is that, not that it's easy to do, it's not easy to switch careers or anything like that, but it is possible at mm -hmm. least to shift as your preferences, passions, and and time just changes, mm -hmm. your availability and what you want to spend your time doing. So it's it's kind of, it's a nice thing about mm -hmm. being in the field, even though it, it, it comes with its own challenges. I will say too, and this is a, a bit of a generalization and certainly not exclusively true, but for clinical psychologists, I think it's actually fairly rare to find anyone who's only doing one of these three things. Um, whatever the main focus is for any of these paths, I think you're probably doing a little bit of all three in what, you know, for example, pursuing a clinical career, like you talked about science is a really important thing for me. It's one of my main values that drives my clinical work. So it's always going to be important for me to stay up to date on literature and take a scientific or hypothesis testing approach to my clinical work. And then someday maybe I'll be responsible for training or supervising other students at a clinic. So there'll be that teaching component too. And, and, and all three of those domains, I think you probably find some of that overlap. Yeah. And, you know, even within, I think in the domains, you see differences. So like pre-tenure, a lot of my research was focusing on basically proving myself so I could keep my job, which is mm -hmm. trying to get publications and grants and focused on that. I've shifted my research has much more shifted to being focused on my graduate students, making sure they get first author publications, making sure that they have what they need to get their jobs. And so it's even that is more of a teaching or yeah. mentor role that's that's changed over time um, and, and morphed with, you know, also what's rewarding. And, and, and again, that, that's there's some individual differences there, too. I think some people just continue doing certain things that yeah. they like but oh, for me I think even early on like I, I actually contacted my mentor and I was like you know I think I'm supposed to be a first author on these papers but you know you always put your students as first author my mentor did he was very generous he's like yeah but I was post tenure so that's something to keep sure. in mind and I was like oh yeah so I need to rework the framework there so anyway it's it's interesting to think about how 
things have changed over time as, as roles have changed. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think also just other stuff, like in the, in the beginning, I, you know, without, without a family and also maybe just being a decade younger, I might really push really hard, working hard on the weekends, staying up super late and stuff like that. Whereas now I might prioritize, well, I want to confine how much work I'm doing, even though it is important for me to have some connection to clinical people, maybe that's an area where I might cut back just so that I'm not overwhelmed with work or, or so that I can have more effort into this one area without overdoing it. I guess in some, I think one of the most, and you've kind of already said this, so I'm just reiterating a bit, but one of the greatest things about a PhD in clinical psychology is how incredibly dynamic it is in the types of experiences and positions you can pursue. And that you don't have to know exactly what you want to do predictive for the next decades. I think that sometimes early on I was anxious about am I making the wrong decision? And I, some of that makes sense, but it's you're not locked in forever into one thing, which is nice. And I'll also say this goes for any of these questions, but any of this career stuff, um, which I think is hard to figure out. I'm only 10 years in. Um, feel free to email and follow up. Same with the first question we talked about but any of these i'd be happy to talk more about any of this mm-hmm. stuff because there are a lot of individual factors that apply mm-hmm. and then we just have one question left actually and we're about an hour and 10 minutes so we might be a little bit shorter but i'm actually wondering uh if this one would make a fun blog post so maybe we'll return to it in more detail someday okay but another question submitted by michaela via email uh reads this question is a little more specific and about one f- fictional character in particular. Uh, I'm assuming you have both read Harry Potter, but if not, spoilers ahead. Katie has not read Harry I Potter. I have not read all okay. of it, but I have seen many of the movies, and spoilers are okay. Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, my question is at the, and I've read some. <laughs> at the end of the seventh and final Harry Potter book, when Harry meets Voldemort in the forest, does Harry Potter attempt suicide? Uh, given the expertise that you both have in suicidology, I would love to hear your thoughts about this one particular case. On the one hand, certain aspects of Harry's situation appear to align with current theoretical models of suicide, and i.e. the interpersonal theory of suicide. So A, Voldemort is telling him that he is the reason all of his friends are dying, so perceived burdensomeness. B, leading up to his encounter with Voldemort in the forest, he puts on the invisibility cloak and seems to feel quite disconnected from those around him who are alive, so thwarted belongingness. And then C, uh, throughout the book series, there are countless times where he gets injured and experiences painful and provocative events and then acquired a capability. So on the other hand, although Harry engaged in a behavior approaching Voldemort with the intent to die, he did not directly engage in a self-injurious act himself. Uh, these are just my thoughts, but I would love to hear what both of you think. And it's actually uh, it's actually a really good question. And I like the uh, the particular, or rather specific, reference and examples of the interpersonal theory of suicide as well, which is uh, something that we've talked about on the show multiple times. So I think what makes this uh, example particularly tricky, of course, is it's, and this is one that I know people have talked about too, and, and I've seen pop up in other places, is where Harry really is kind of sacrificing himself to save everyone else because not to dig too far into harry potter lore forgive me voldemort is kept alive by a series of things that in which he has imbued his soul called horcruxes and so about halfway through the series that's kind of what they find out maybe a little more than half 
and all of these horcruxes need to be destroyed for Voldemort to finally perish forever. And as it comes to find out, the reader and the characters, Harry is one of these horcruxes. So for Voldemort to be defeated forever and not to harm anyone else, he needs to be destroyed. Uh, so that's kind of why he goes out into the forest. All the other horcruxes are destroyed, and he knows that Voldemort will attack him and presumably kill him. And then that would defeat Voldemort after that. So that's what makes that a little bit more complicated, and why I don't know if it actually fits within the interpersonal theory of suicide perfectly at least my thought is that in joiner's book why people die by suicide when he explains this theory he talks about certain kinds of cases that are not i guess typical mm -hmm. in the typical range of suicide but still might have some relevance he talks about mm -hmm. a couple things one of them is a physician assisted suicide another that he talks about is uh, suicide bombers and he talks about how these are different things. Now, Harry doesn't quite right. fit into those, except psychologically, perhaps, uh, viewing that his death is worth more than his life to others. And basically what, what um, and self-sacrificing. And basically, so I think my speculation is within that framework, we'd say there are some commonalities, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's hard to know. I mean, technically, I guess the other thing I thought about is like, well... He knows it might happen, but he, all things being equal, I don't think he wants to die. Right. right. It's that he really wants to save them. Yes. And so that makes it different. Mm -hmm. um, but it is interesting that you still see some of those threads of the theory mm -hmm. throughout it that are maybe make that uh, behavior possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I actually think this is a really good question yeah. where... It's actually a real thinker, isn't it? Because it's, mm -hmm. it doesn't fit perfectly, but it does have a lot of those uh, features that do line up with the theory really well. Yeah, and it does make sense that that's why, you know, would we call it desiring suicide like the theory says? I don't think so. I don't think so But either. it is, um, it, it's, it, there are some similar elements that maybe enable him to do these things that other people wouldn't do mm -hmm. because of his past experiences and his... Perception in this case, which is not distorted usually, it is distorted right. that there might be some benefit to right. him being destroyed, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the other part of it. It's a great question, though. Mm -hmm. I like that it a is. lot. It's yeah. very good. Okay, well, should we wrap it up there then? I think that's all of our questions. So. Yeah, so thank you so much for everyone who took the time mm -hmm. to send a question and everyone who took the time to listen to what I think is our record-long episode, <laughs> which, is, which is well worth it. So... Uh, that's kind of all we have for today, I suppose. Yep. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening in, and uh, you'll hear from us again next week. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.